We're going to start with prayer this morning, and I want to uh, share with you briefly. You'll hear kind of the content of the prayer, but um, I feel like it's kind of cool that we're praying for this this morning. We've been praying for local churches for some time now. Sometimes there's the implication or kind of the unintended message that if we're praying for local churches that we must have it figured out and we don't need prayer and they all need it, which is totally not the spirit of it. In fact, it's a, a hope and a prayer that they would be praying for us as well, that we would be praying for God's glory in other bodies within our community. And this week I got a call from Steve Lawson. We've been praying for Grace Community Church off, you know, off and on just when the Spirit leads on a given Sunday morning. Got a call from Steve Lawson this week, said, hey man, I need to sit down with you. I'm preaching through Romans 9, and I need to sit and talk with you and kind of work through some of that. And um, man, that was just cool. That was just cool that another pastor in this community uh, made the point to say, hey, I need to kind of talk through this with another pastor. And on such a challenging text... um, so I told, uh, Scott and I both met with Steve on Thursday, spent an hour, hour and a half or so over lunch, and just digging into Romans 9, and um, he came in saying that it was going to be a two-part sermon probably over the course of Romans 9, and he left saying it looks like at least three, so that's good. That's a good sign. Man, I love that. love that. So I told him, uh, Scott and I told him we'd be praying for Grace this morning and praying for Steve as he preaches. <laughs> And uh, I'd like for us to pray, too, for our family members who are in the far corners of the field. Uh, We need to lift them up this morning. So let's pray. Lord, this morning, I just first want to lift up another uh, pastor and another church in this community and just so thankful for another church that's going to work through the story, every bite. Just so delighted to hear from Steve the words that came out of his mouth It's a surprise that he saves anyone. Man, that is good medicine, Lord. That just blows my mind to hear that from another pastor in our community. Just a perspective that sees grace in the context of righteous, holy wrath and judgment. That sees the love that is Christ in the foreground as the embodiment of your love. That is good medicine, Lord. We pray for Steve right now. We pray for Grace Community Church. We pray that they are savoring and enjoying and tasting and seeing and delighting in the good news. I pray that you'll give him clarity of of speech, of mind, of heart. I pray that these sort of truths are just in some ways undoing him and just rocking his view of everything so that he sees just a completely sovereign God in the work of salvation. Lord, we are thankful for the journey that we have with other churches in our community. We pray for great things among your people in this community for your glory. Or two, want to lift up our family members who are in the far corners of the field this morning. Want to pray for Jeff and Pam, for Jake and Steph. For Derek and Casey, for Renee. Or there are things at work and at play in the dark corners that we, I think, are spared in some ways or protected from. Uh, Just some challenges and some struggles and some forces at work that uh, are more obvious in the dark corners. And Lord, we pray that you will just give them a peace that 
He who's in them is greater than he that's in the world. And just a satisfaction and trust in knowing that you are big and great and good and that Satan does not scratch his behind except for permission from the living God. I just pray for things to be in perspective. I pray for a healthy and rich and vibrant fear of the Lord that will temper all the other challenges that they're facing. Lord, in these next few minutes, uh, we are thankful for your word, thankful for this story of Peter. I just pray in advance that you will just show us ourselves in Peter, that we'll see grace and mercy on display, that we'll see our condition in contrast with your character, and that we'll marvel and enjoy you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The title of this message this morning is Humbled for Good Use. Today we're going to see how Peter's call, his big bold promise that he would trust Christ even unto death, how his three denials of Christ, and how even a wayward fishing trip all contribute to a life-altering moment on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Something happened here at the end of the book of John. Something happened to Peter that conditioned him for the rest of his ministry. So just so you know that this isn't just a character study about some dude in his ministry, so we can climb into it just from the outset, know that you each, each are supposed to have a ministry. So this little character study in some ways is more than that. It's going to be revealing about the character of our own ministry. And how this drama that unfolded in Peter's life needs to unfold in our lives. And what God will do as a result. What I plan on doing these next few minutes, you're welcome to follow along if, you, if, if you'd like to. I'm sort of a visual, or excuse me, an auditory learner, audio, auditory learner, rather than a visual. So it's helpful for me to just almost close my eyes and listen. If you're more of a visual guy, then, then, then you can turn to these texts. But I'm going to read some contextual passages that are sort of the rest of the story before I get to the passage that we're focusing on this morning in John chapter 21. It's about four passages, and they're somewhat brief, but they sort of give the high watermarks of Peter's story. So if you're one of those auditory listeners, or excuse me, learners like me, then just listen. If you want to turn to the passages and you need to see them, Luke chapter 5 is the first one. What I plan on doing is reading these contextual passages, there are four of them, with very little commentary, and then reading the passage that we engaged last week, sort of the first part of this wayward fishing trip, and then when we get to where we're focusing this morning in John chapter 21, verse 15 through 19, slowing down and unpacking a little bit of it. And then we're going to walk away, hopefully, this morning with two important truths that we learn from Peter's story. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, same lake as the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. Those are all the same body of water. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put, a little out, or put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
Simon answered, Master, <laughs> we're fishermen. You know, just imagine he's thinking. We're fishermen, you're a teacher. We toiled all night and took nothing. But you know what? At your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter, you got it. He reacted the same way that Isaiah reacted when he saw Christ on the throne and he's looking for a crack in the floor trying to hide from holiness. He got it at the beginning of his journey with Christ. Lord, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land... They left everything and followed him. Fishermen of fish walked away from their fishing boats and their nets to become fishers of men. Now, the second passage is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. <clears throat> now, when Jesus, now, let me tell you too, I want you to keep your eye on the football, and the football is Peter this morning, if I haven't pointed that out. Keep your eye on Peter. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah, or Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Just think about it for a moment. Peter goes from being a fisherman who leaves his fishing boats to follow Christ to in one moment confessing Christ as the Christ and is pronounced to be the rock. What would this do to you? How would this leave you? You're standing there with 11 other disciples. Would you have the temptation to kind of look around and go, did you hear that? He called me rock. It looks like I'm the man. I didn't know it, but apparently I'm the man. And Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it on this rock. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What an awesome moment for Peter. It must have been affirming for Peter. He must have thought inside secretly, yes, I nailed that one. Looks like I have a great future in store. Now turn to Matthew chapter 26, or listen, depending on if you're a listener or a looker. This is on the eve of Christ's cross. This is after they had taken the Lord's Supper. Okay, we're fast-forwarding. The first part was the beginning of Christ's ministry and the beginning of Peter's journey with Christ. The, the second reading was somewhere in the middle where he confi- confesses Christ as Lord. 
And now we're moving to toward the end where Christ is about to be crucified. When they sung a hymn after they had the Lord's Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. All. Huh. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, The rock. Ho, ho, ho. Wait a second, Jesus. The rock is about to weigh in on this observation that you've made. Though they all fall away. My brother Andrew, James and John, ordinary Philip, doubting Thomas, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Hear it, Jesus. I'm the rock and I mean it. I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, rock, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Now, let's fast forward to just hours later to John chapter 18. Only hours later. We're not talking months, years. We're talking hours after this big promise. Though all fall away, I will never. John chapter 18, verse 15. Hours later, Simon Peter, a.k.a. Rock, followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But the rock stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl and kept watch at the door and brought the rock inside. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And the rock said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And the the rock was also with them, standing and warming himself. Toasting his little cold fingers. Simon standing and warming himself in verse 25. It says, they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it again and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked Did I not see you in the garden with him? And the rock again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. That's all background for the passage we're going to climb into today. I'm going to read the first section of John chapter 21 just for the sake of nearer context. And then we're going to slow down our pace a little bit beginning at verse 15. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Same sea, same body of water where Peter received his call. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called a twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. The rock's going to go fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. 
So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, though, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I'm going to tell you right now, I've been really kind of bathing in this passage for the last few weeks. We've touched on this passage in the past few months in various sermons. This question right here seems like it's an obvious question. Do you love me more than these? But you've got to ask the question, these what? What are you talking about, Jesus? We're reading it through the lens of a written word 2,000 years later. There's three possibilities for what he's saying right here. First of all, he may be saying, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? That's a possibility. It's something that we can do. It happens in marriages often. When a man looks to his wife to make him happy, he makes a functional savior of that woman and makes her miserable and himself. We can very easily make gods of one another and love each other more than we love our Jesus. So it's a good question. That's the first possibility. Do you love me more than you love these disciples? The second possibility is, do you love me more than you love your fishing gear? Do you love me more than you love your fishing boat? Do you love me more than you love 153 fish sitting there flopping on the ground? That's a good question, too. Even John said in 1 John, he said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's a very easy possibility that we could fall in love with our stuff more than we love our Jesus. So although that's the second possibility, it's a good possibility, but it looks like the best possibility is the third question, the third meaning. Do you love me more than the other disciples love me? That's what seems to be asked here. Do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Now, with, without context, this question comes across as sort of divisive. However, he answers is going to put distance between him and the other disciples without context. It seems almost as if Jesus would be inviting that sort of division, which doesn't sound like Jesus. This question has got to be understood in light of his strong promise in Matthew chapter 26. Though they all fall away, Andrew, James, John, Nathaniel, ordinary Phil, doubting Thomas, though all those guys fall away, not the rock. I will never fall away. Given context, this question comes into focus, not as a divisive question, but it sounds like this. Do you really love me like that, Peter? Do you really love me more than Andrew, 
more than ordinary Phil, more than Thomas, more than James and John. Do you really love me like you said you do? You hear that? Is your commitment really all you think it is, Peter? That's the tone of that question understood in context. We continue on. Peter answered his question. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. This little dialogue between Jesus and Peter is almost like a tennis match, starting with Jesus' question, then Peter's assurance of his love, and the first volley ends with the first command in this interaction. The first command to feed his lambs. And again, the question, and then the answer, and then again, a charge. The second command to tend his sheep. And then again, the third question, and this time a sad answer and a charge to feed his sheep. I want you to notice, too, Christ's reference to his sheep and his lambs. That's important to hear and see. Notice that they are his sheep and lambs, not Peter's. Parents, I want you to hear this. Small group shepherds, I want you to hear this. Elders, we need to hear this. Peter, those aren't your sheep. They're my sheep, and I'm giving you stewardship over their souls. But ultimately, they belong to me. I hear it in parents sometimes where a parent cannot hear anything other than a stroking about their own child from someone else. How dare you say something about my child? Wait a second, that's not your child. That belongs to the Lord. You belong to the Lord, and the elders need to be reminded of that as well. Because whenever you start to take ownership of things, you start to try and take control. You can do it in your parenting, and we can try and do it in the church. That's a great reminder. They're not your sheep, Peter. They're mine. Note, too, the almost if-then character of each of these volleys. If you love me, then feed my lambs. If you love me, then tend my sheep. If you love me, then feed my sheep. More on that later. We pick up again in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands. That's metaphor for crucifixion. You will someday follow me after all. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him two words, simple words, follow me. This connection to the plans for Peter is in connection or in, uh, connected in some way to Peter's bold promise and desire to follow him. He says, you know what? You are going to follow me eventually. You're going to follow me to your own cross. And then Jesus ends this tennis match, this volley, 
with the final words of this restoration dialogue, a charge, the fourth charge, the fourth commandment of this passage, to follow Christ. That passage right there, those words are present tense, follow. It could be translated, continue following me. I tell you, at this point, I'm looking for a St. Crispin speech. I'm looking for a Braveheart speech. And that's all we get from Jesus? Yes, Peter, continue following me. If you remember from a few months ago, our membership renewal, the passage where, where Paul is writing to Timothy, and he tells him, just continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. That's all you got, Paul? That's all you got, Jesus? That's the hard work of the faith, continuing unimpressive. There's no light shows. There's no movies going to be made about you. There's no dancing girls. There's no smoke machines, no mirrors. Just continue. Unimpressive. That's what we've been called to. Continue following Christ. Now, two things I want to bring out this morning. The first has to do with humility. It seems that God humbles those he loves. Turn to Luke chapter 22. I'd want you to see this passage. Luke chapter 22. This is an account of this bold promise that Peter makes to Christ on the eve of his cross, that's Christ's cross, that I haven't read. And I saved it for this moment because it sort of unlocks the keys to this whole drama with Peter. We've grabbed these contextual passages, we've sort of climbed into the story, and this passage is sort of going to unlock the purpose of the whole thing. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That word there, you, is plural, so it would be speaking to all the disciples. Satan has demanded to have all of you, that he might sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to you, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. This notion of Satan sifting Peter is connected to this entire drama. What I want you to realize, first of all, is that God humbles those he loves so you can serve. You will be sifted so you can serve. Peter, you're going to be sifted, and then I want you to go strengthen the brothers. For you can't strengthen the brothers until you're sifted, knucklehead. Because you think you're all that. You need to be sifted like wheat. You need to be humbled. Peter trusted in himself and was so confident of his loyalty and commitment that he even declares that his love is greater than that of the others. Though they all fall away, the rock will never. It just won't happen. Jesus, you can depend on me. Peter needed to be humbled, and it is a great mercy that Christ showed him the darkness of his own heart. These last few weeks of sermons, last couple of months of sermons, have done that for me. I've been stirred up by way of reminder just how low grace has reached. As we've seen Christ's complete sufficiency and our complete insufficiency. 
Peter needed to see the darkness of his own heart. He needed to see how ridiculous it is to trust in your own self. It's comical when you see it. We laughed about the rooster crowing a few months ago. It's comical, but it's heartbreaking at the same time. We have to see how ridiculous it is to have confidence in yourself. Peter needed to have his proud spirit humbled. You hear the humbling work in Peter's grief on the third response. He's not so confident now, is he? They'll all fall away. I will never fall away. You don't hear that in these answers. He puts, he puts it on Christ to answer those questions of his love. He puts it on Christ's sovereignty and Christ's all-knowing character. You know everything, Jesus. You know that I love you. A.W. Pink, I have one of my favorite commentaries from John. It's from A.W. Pink, and he quotes a German theologian, a, guy, a theologian, a guy named Steer. Uh, this theologian was from the 1800s, so it has sort of uh, oldish language to it, but it's really good. He characterizes Peter's response. He says, It was as though he said, Though, he says, Thou hast known me from the beginning as son of Jonah. Thou hast drawn me to thee, Jesus. Thou hast kindled, my lo- kindled love in my soul. Thou hast called me Peter. Thou didst warn of my blindness and pray for my faith and hast since forgiven me. Thou hast looked both before and since thy death into my heart with eyes of grace, so thou knowest all. What I feel concerning love is this, Jesus, that I am far from loving thee as I ought and as thou art worthy of being loved. But thou, O Lord, knowest that in spite of my awful failure and notwithstanding my present weakness and deficiency, I do love thee. And he captured the tone of those responses. Peter's been sifted. The irony here in the whole thing is that Peter's been sifted by Satan to do God's work. We have such a weird view of Satan. We put God over here on the good side and Satan over here on the bad side. And what you don't realize, Martin Luther was quoted as saying that even the devil is God's devil. That Satan doesn't scratch his behind except for, for, by permission. And that everything Satan does in the life of the believer, that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That God worked a good old sifting to humble Peter so that he could be used. Even the devil is God's devil. It's a doctrine of concurrence. What you guys meant for evil, God meant for good. What Satan's going to try and work in your life, Peter, I'm going to use for good so that you can strengthen the brothers. Because you're useless otherwise because you think you're all that. So I'm going to allow Satan to do his work of sifting so that you can be used. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Another man that went through this sort of process... The word sifting is not used, but it, it looks like it, reminds me of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, To keep me from being 
too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Now, I have an old ESV, and I found that the newer English Standard Version say, to keep me from being conceited. The New American Standard actually says, to keep me from exalting myself. I'm glad they changed the old one because the old one doesn't do justice to it. To keep me from being elated? That's not like you could be really excited about some rich truth about God. The problem here is to, something's got to keep him from being conceited. Something's got to keep him from thinking that he's all that and exalting himself. And to keep me from being too conceited by the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I'm serving up, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being Conceited. Now, we don't know what the thorn of Paul's flesh was. Some people think it's an eye condition. He wrote to the church in Galatia. See how my big letters kind of point to the fact that I wrote this letter? It may have been an eye condition. It may have been some sort of besetting sin. That Paul just could not find victory over. Some people think that maybe it was stuttering. Because of how he writes to the Corinthian church about his faltering speech and how God used that to put his power on display. Some people think it may have been a bunch of complicated people that were the thorn in his flesh. The Judaizers of the book of Galatians. Maybe the Nicolaitans in the book of Ephesians. We don't know what this thorn in the flesh is and it's divinely ambiguous. It's so you can put your thorn in there and realize that God has given you that to humble you. He's given me a thorn to humble me and keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Peter just got a visitor from Satan, or really Satan himself, to sift him. Paul gets a live-in version of that. Man, what I'm realizing as I read this is these things that seem to bring us low and seem to be obstacles to our faith are the very vehicles that put the power of Christ on display and put get grace in the gospel on display in a lot of occasions. We think once I get through this problem, once I get through this difficulty, then I'll be able to put the gospel on display to my family or to my friends or to my workmates, not realizing it's in that mess that the gospel's on display. It's in that mess when you are low and weak and broken, the grace is on display. I was wondering if this showed up anywhere in Peter's ministry later on. I was wondering if this occasion, this event, this seaside restoration, and the humbling work of the whole drama showed up in Peter's life at all. Listen to this passage. Jot it down and listen. First Peter chapter 5. Listen to these words from Peter. The same guy that denied him three times, the same guy that heard the, the, the rooster crow, the same guy that's restored on the, by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. There it is. He commanded me three times to feed my sheep. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And there he is exhorting the elders among you. Now he's speaking in a strict sense to the elders, like me and Steve and Brad and Scott, but in a in a in a looser sense, he's speaking to the shepherds in the home. 
Shepherd the flock among you, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those under your charge. Sometimes guilty happens when you start to take ownership, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. There it is. I wondered if this event showed up in Peter's ministry, and sure enough, there it shows up. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud. He opposed me, and thankfully, he sifted me like wheat so that I saw my frailties. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This sifting tempered Peter's ministry. You need to realize that there is a sweet blessing of hearing the cock crow. There's a sweet blessing of having a thorn in the flesh. There's a sweet blessing of seeing your empty nets, of seeing the diddly squat that you've earned on your own. There's a sweet blessing of reckoning with your failings. Those difficulties will keep you from being conceited. They keep you from exalting yourself because you are not the good news. Christ and what he's done for you, an alien righteousness for you, is the good news. Hear that, people of God. You are not the good news. The gospel that you share is the good news. Then and only then can you be used in your home. Then and only then, when you are sifted and humbled, can we as elders be used in walking with you? Then and only then can small group shepherds be used in the life of your small group. When you come in low and are humbled by God's sweet work. If you don't see yourself with diddly squat in your own efforts, you'll never truly enjoy the full nets that we have in Him, and it won't communicate to anybody else. Other people can see when you think you have some fish of your own. Trust me. Other people can see when you're carrying around the net and you got some fish and you're like, hey, check my, check my fish out. I got some righteousness of my own. Other people can see it and they call baloney. And our gospel, gets, the, the skids are greased whenever we come in low and say, we are not righteous on our own. We wear an alien righteousness. And man, I am fallen and frail. He's my righteousness. Thursday morning, I sat with... Uh, some of the folks that show up for our prayer time on Thursdays, y'all are all invited to do that if you ever would like to at 6.30 on Thursdays. I read this from the Valley of Vision, this uh, Puritan prayer. I thought it was good. It sounded like this guy had been sifted. He says, Searcher of the hearts, it is a good day to me when thou givest me a glimpse of myself. Sin is my greatest evil, but thou art my greatest good. I have cause to loathe myself and not to seek self-honor, for no one desires to commend his own dunghill. I think he's been sifted. My country, family, church fare worse because of my sins, for sinners bring judgment in thinking sins are small or that God is not angry with them. Let me not take other good men as my example and think that I am good because I am like them. For all good men are not so good as thou desirest, are not always consistent, do not always follow holiness, do not feel eternal good and sore affliction. Show me how to know when a thing is evil, which I think is right and good. 
How to know when what is lawful comes from an evil principle, such as a, such a desire for reputation or wealth by usury. Give me grace to recall my needs, my lack of knowing thy will in Scripture, of wisdom to guide others, of daily repentance, want of which keeps thee at bay, of the spirit of prayer, having words without love, of zeal for thy glory, seeking my own ends, of joy in thee and thy will, of love to others. That sounds like a dude that's been sifted. And the irony here is, however many years ago this guy wrote this, 1600s maybe, he's still being used. Isn't that something? He's still being used. Some nameless guy came in real low and shared his dark heart and his deep need for an alien righteousness. And just thankfully, he wrote it down, and somebody put it in this little book, and here we sit, 2011, reading it, ministered to by this guy just being frank with God. I'm going to tell you right now, you can't and won't be used until you come in low. Something, I can think of occasions in some of your lives where God has sifted you. You have shown your royal behind to somebody, and I'm thankful for it, because finally you can be used. Something happened in your life. You got canned. Yes. Your business failed. Yes. Something happened to you that brought you low enough where you can be used. And some of you, I'm begging for it. Those things that you think, man, this is an obstacle to me being, you know, showing the gospel. That's going to be the vehicle for it. I can't wait for it. That's the doctrine of concurrence, that what others mean for evil, God means for good. You won't be used in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family till you are humble to the point where you come in low and you see your desperate need for alien righteousness. The second thing I want you to get is briefer. But man, it's sweet. Golly, it's sweet. If you love Jesus, then you feed and tend his sheep and his lambs. Look again at the character of the volley. Just listen if you're not there. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend to my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. He says, okay, feed my sheep. It's sort of an if-then character, the whole thing, because the byproduct of a love for Jesus is going to be a feeding and tending ministry to others. It is. How many people profess a love for Jesus but have no use for ministry to people? I'm going to tell you right now, Scott's heard it from me, Brad's heard it from me, Steve's probably heard it at times, where I'm just sort of tired of you. I'm, I'm being honest. I'm tired of the drama. This is a dramaless church compared to a lot. But I get tired of it. You know what my problem is? It's not you. My problem at that moment, I'm not loving Jesus. You know how I love Jesus? is to minister to the difficult. That's how I love Jesus. It's to minister to sheep. They're not smart. Lambs, they're needy. That's how I love Jesus. How many people profess to love Jesus but have no use for ministry to people? How many say they love Jesus yet have no time to tend his sheep? 
How many say they love Jesus, but yet they won't make time to tend his sheep? Man, see the formula. I'm not making it up. If you love me, then you're going to feed and tend my sheep and my lambs. Where this should show up is shepherds have to make time to tend and feed in your home. And the content of your tending and feeding is not romper room dad. Man, I love to see romper room dad. I'm not that kind of tickle fight dad, although I can tickle my kids. It's not, I, I don't do that by nature. Some of you, I'm amazed at it. It's awesome. But tending and feeding your sheep is going to be with God's word. It's going to be spiritually tending and feeding their souls. That's what this is. Realize, if, if you say you love Jesus, this is how it's going to show up. Shepherds, you need to hear that. Families, you need to expect that. You need to look to your daddy, or in some cases a single mom, or a spiritually single mom. You need to look to them to feed you. If they love Jesus, that's how it's going to show up. Tending and feeding the sheep. You won't feed anyone without his word, period. So a love for Jesus shows up in a real ministry of his word to his sheep. I'm going to tell you some real practical ways this can show up. is in the home with a shepherd sitting and reading his family, or reading the Bible with his family. Unimpressive. Here, continue. There won't be any light shows, won't be any movies, won't be any dancing girls. But that's how you contend and feed your sheep and your lambs, or his sheep and his lambs that he's given you stewardship with. Just read the Bible. You don't have to have a seminary degree to do that. Can you read? If you can read, raise up on it, man. That's all you need. Read and let the Word do its work. It tells your family that it matters. And it tells your family that somebody else is at the helm other than you. They need to know that. That's a practical way it can show up. Another practical way it can show up is children's ministry. We should never, ever, ever, ever have to ask people and beg people to serve in the children's ministry. You should be begging us and serving and begging us to do it. Singles, you don't have to get kids ready in the morning. There's no reason why you can't be raising up and serving in that children's ministry. Giving you an opportunity to love Jesus. Let it show up by tending and feeding his sheep and his lambs. If we have a children's ministry that can't support workers, what that tells me is our church doesn't love Jesus. Hear that. If you don't have time to pour into lambs and sheep, according to this passage, you don't love Jesus. That's hard to hear, isn't it? So you can sit there offended and be big in your own eyes, or you can be really small and say, man, I better start tending and feeding because I know I love Jesus, so it's got to show up. Man, it's going to have teeth and feet and hands. The love for Jesus shows up in tending and feeding his sheep. These two observations, they sort of fit together. God's humbling work and tending and feeding his sheep, they go together. The grief of a real understanding of yourself and a real joy in alien righteousness goes along with feeding and tending sheep. It tempers that ministry of feeding and tending sheep. Grief, but yet it's a joyful grief. Because your joy is not in your own works and your own supposed fish. 
Your joy is in that alien righteousness. It must temper the shepherd in the home. It must temper the shepherd in the small group. And it must temper the elder in the church. The last thing I want to share with you is actually going to lead us into our Lord's Supper. Something I've been thinking about on this whole drama with Peter is I've been asking myself, why three? Why, Why did he have to deny him three times? And then why is he questioned three times? Why is he given three charges? And I'll tell you where I'm landing. I don't have a whole lot of clarity on that, on that question. But I'll tell you where it's taken me. It's taken me to a place of really sort of a devotional level teaching. Now, devotional level teaching, I'm going to qualify for you, is different from the authoritative exposition of the Scripture. A devotion is sort of taking maybe an illustration of Scripture to um, display an important truth. So this is a devotional teaching. I cannot tell you that what I'm about to share with you is what John is thinking while he's writing the book of John. But I can tell you that according to the full counsel and the story of what happened to Peter, that it's true. All right, all that preface. Two passages I want to share with you. One from Isaiah. Listen, just listen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The book of John tells us that Isaiah was seeing Christ sitting on the throne. So Christ is seated on the throne here. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, John ate a diet of Isaiah. It shows up a lot in the book of John. The other reference to this thrice holy character of God is in the book of Revelation, chapter 4. This is the throne room vision in heaven. Chapter 4. Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I've been asking the question, why three denials? Why three? I mean, it would only take one denial to really be kind of ugly, but three makes it really ugly. It makes it sufficiently ugly. It makes it adequately ugly to see the darkness of Peter's heart. And then why three questions on the Sea of Tiberias? Why not just ask him once? Three seems to amply put on display the grace and mercy of Jesus. I've been asking the question of three, and then in light of passages like this, Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter 4, three is just fitting. Because as our God is holy, holy, holy. We are not, not, not. As our God is holy, 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 here, I don't know him. I don't know the man. The third one, he called down curses from heaven. By God, I don't know the man. Three is just fitting. Because we're thrice sinful, in need of grace, grace, grace. 
I'm going to pray, and then we're going to eat with a thrice holy God who's thrice graceful and thrice merciful. God, we are so thankful that we're invited to your table. We are so thankful for the humbling work that you administer on those that you love. I pray that as we come to this table, that we are humbled just in the reality of the gospel in knowing that there is nothing in us, not one single shred of righteousness. That on our best day, that we need gobs of grace. Lord, I pray as we come to this table, that we can come to this table like Peter would eat at this table, low, sifted, Lord, I pray as we come to this table that we realize that we bring deadly squat and that all we have is faith in an alien righteousness and a great Lord and a finished work. Lord, if there is anything in us that we think is righteous on our own, anything that we think we've earned, anything that we think we deserve, I pray that as we come to this table that you will move that out of the way. And I pray that it will carry over into the home and into the workplace and into the neighborhood and into whatever context that we move out into this week. That we are kept low and useful. I'm thankful for those occasions where we show our behinds. I'm thankful for the grace and the mercy. Christ displayed to Peter on this seashore. And I'm surprised that you would call us to shepherd and feed and tend to your sheep. It sobers us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Talking about the thorn in the flesh. I love that it's ambiguous. Some of those examples I gave in there, they're personal examples for me. My whole life, I've struggled with medicating with food. I've struggled with my weight. And it's a bummer. As a kid, I stuttered so bad I couldn't get a sentence out. The overweight kid that stutters in school might might as well wear a bullseye. And in some weird way, I'm thankful for that because it taught me to need him. And I won't ever not need him The moment I think I got victory over something and put a check in that block, it rears its ugly head. I won't ever not need him. We have victory, and it's victory in an alien righteousness. Does he change you and grow you and give you self-control? Absolutely. But that's not what this thing is about. It's a byproduct of the journey. If that's all you're in it for is life improvement, you're not here for the gospel. The gospel is that we have no fish. And our ugly thorns and our sifting and all that is just a sweet and graceful tutor that shows us that we have no fish. We have empty nets. But his are ample. He did what we couldn't do. The thing in your life that you're thinking, man, I beg for victory over this. Paul prayed three times, remove this thing from me. You may have prayed 300, remove this thing from me. I'm encouraging you to realize that all things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. And that's an all thing. 
He may give you some victory or strength or some sort of self-control in that area someday. But don't live for that. Live for him and that'll be a byproduct. Come to this table low. The good news is not you. He's the good news. Let's take this meal low, enjoying his sufficiency. Let's take and eat.